what can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians sing? That's the question theologian Carl Truman posed in a short essay over a decade ago. As Truman observed the landscape of many churches in America, he noticed that the language of lament was largely missing from many congregations' worship services. Instead, so much of the mood and the music was about creating and keeping an emotional high. The problem? Well, Truman remarked, a diet of constantly jolly hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation, which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist block party. A theologically incorrect and pastorally dangerous scenario in a world full of broken individuals. Amen. The Christian life is not one long, happy party. It's not a life full of only triumphs, but also some tragedies. Amen. Yes, there are joys, but also sorrows. The Christian life is often one long, trial-filled, trouble-filled, grief-stricken journey. You know that for yourself. Amen. Maybe this morning you've come surrounded by reminders that this is the most wonderful time of the year, telling you that you should be holly and jolly and merry and happy. But that's not how you feel. This week's been hard. This year's been hard. Your whole life has been hard. Perhaps you're wondering, is there a place for a person like you in the world? Is there a person for a place for a person like you in the church? Is there a place for a person like you in the Bible? Well, as we begin a new sermon series this morning through the book of Ruth, I think we learned that there is a place for hurting people like you and I to find rest and hope and restoration and redemption in God. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Ruth? The book of Ruth. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 222. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, then we invite you to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We would love nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's Word. The book of Ruth, and this morning we'll look at Ruth chapter 1. We read this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, 
And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to follow from, return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mary, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of Barnyard. What an amazing and beautiful and wonderful and heavy opening to a book. And here's what I think is the main point of this first chapter of Ruth. Main point of Ruth chapter one. Don't let the bitterness of life 
blind you from the bigger and better purposes of God. Don't let the bitterness of life blind you from the bigger and better purposes of God. As we walk through this chapter this morning, we'll hang our thoughts and focus on two dual realities. Number one, life is bitter. Number two, but God is at work. Amen. Number one, life is bitter. We'll see that in verses one through five. Number two, but God is at work. We'll see that in verses six through 22. Point number one, life is bitter. Now we don't know the specific author of this book. He's not named. Nor do we know the exact date of the book. But the author gives us some clues. And if you look at verse 1, he writes, In the days when the judges ruled. It's a time marker letting us know where we are in the biblical storyline. You know, there is a storyline in the Bible. Unlike other religious books, the Bible is not merely a collection of stories or sayings just thrown together with no cohesion. No, there's one story stretching from the first book, Genesis, to the last book, Revelation, that is being progressively unfolded as God progressively reveals himself and his plan to save his people from their sins and bring them home to him. The time of the judges is a specific time in the life of the people of Israel. In Genesis, God called Abraham and told him that he would make a great people from him, that he would be the father of many nations, that kings would come from his line, and a kingdom, including the rule over a land. Abraham died, only seeing a small sliver of that promise begin to unfold as the son of promise was born in his old age, Isaac. And then Isaac bore Jacob, whom God named Israel. And from Jacob came 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, a people God chose for himself as his special people to represent him on earth. In Exodus, God saved them from slavery in Egypt and entered into a formal covenant with them, making them his very own and giving them his law to live by. He led them out of Egypt to lead them into the promised land of Canaan, the land that he promised Abraham. But the people rebelled time and time again, leading God to judge them by causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until an entire generation was wiped out. It's during this wilderness wandering that the events of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy play out. Then finally, after 40 years, God brings his people into the promised land, led by Joshua. As we read in the book of Joshua of Israel's conquest of the peoples and the territories to inhabit the land of Canaan. The book of Judges opens up with Israel still in the midst of of the conquest of these lands and peoples. But they continue to rebel against God. And so God begins to give them over to their enemies as a consequence of their sin. 
But then he raises up judges to save them from their enemy's rule time and time again. It's during this cycle of time the author of Ruth tells us that the events in this book took place. This is not a mythical tale of something that happened long, long ago in an enchanted place somewhere. These events are rooted in history. Amen. Things that happen in real space and time. Probably somewhere between 1250 B.C. and 1050 B.C. But by giving us the setting of these events, the author doesn't just give us a dot on a timeline. He gives us something of the spiritual temperature of the nation of Israel itself. The time of the judges was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Some of the most heinous sins that Israel committed are outlined in the book of Judges. Indeed, the entire time of the Judges is summed up in the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes and what was wrong in God's. After that, the fact that the author here in verse 1 tells us that there was a famine in the land. And you see how incredibly grim things are. But it's not only a dark time in the nation. It's a particularly dark time in the lives of one family in the nation of Israel. I love that the Bible doesn't deal in abstractions. All right. It describes real people and their real experiences and their real problems. And we read that in response to the famine in the land, a man from Bethlehem in Judah named Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and travels to Moab, the country opposite from Judah on the opposite side of the Dead Sea. They leave Judah where there's lack, looking for a more abundant life. But instead of finding life in Moab to be better, what they find that is that it's actually more bitter. Look at verse 3. We read that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. And she's left with her two sons. Naomi is a widow with two sons to still try to raise and rear and lead in the right direction but without the help of a husband and without the support of family and friends she's left home and is in a foreign land in verse 4 we read that her two sons take foreign wives Orpah and Ruth a Moabite women there's a kind of fullness that's returned. Naomi's marriage has ended through death, but two new marriages have sprung up. Not a replacement for Elimelech, but perhaps a refreshment. But then after 10 years, Naomi and Malon and Kilion and Orpah and Ruth all together in Moab. Verse 5 tells us that Malon dies and Kilion dies. No parent ever wants to outlive their children. There are visions of seeing them grow up and get married and give you grandchildren and all the rest. Naomi has seen her sons grow and get married, but there haven't been any grandchildren, and there won't be any. 
their lives are taken. And something of Naomi's as well. In just a decade, death has destroyed this once full family. Naomi, who came into Moab a wife and a mother, is now neither. Notice how the end of verse 5 describes her. Not in terms of marriage or motherhood. She's been stripped of both. She's described only as the woman who's left in Moab without her two sons and without her husband. If she thought there was lack in Judah, there's far greater lack now. Put yourself in this woman's shoes. Perhaps flashing back through her mind were the countless memories, the laughs and smiles that, that she and Elimelech shared on their wedding day. The joy that was theirs when they found out that she was pregnant with their firstborn son. The equal excitement when they found that her womb was full again with a second son. Their family line would go on for generations. So they must have thought. Maybe she recalled Malon's first steps. Or Kilion's first words. Or all the little moments of life that when going through them seemed insignificant and even frustrating, helping the boys with their Hebrew homework, teaching them how to strap their sandals, telling them for the thousandth time to stop hitting your brother. But now what she wouldn't give just to talk to them again, just to see them one more time. Maybe she remembered the last trip they all took together over to Moab and the conversations they had on the way. Elimelech assuring everyone that this was what was best for the family and would only be for a short time until the famine passed and how this might even be a good fresh start, a time to finally act on his long-held dream to start a family business to secure their financial future forever. He'd call it Elimelech and Sons. <laughs> But as all these memories flood Naomi's mind, just as many tears flood her eyes, as reality sets in and she grievingly glares at the three grave sites in front of her, her husband and her two sons, dead. All the men in her life, gone. And she's left alone with no protection, with no provision, with no progeny. As we read these first five verses, I think we're meant to see and feel the sadness of them. Perhaps you can relate quite well. Because in your own life, loss has played a prominent role. The lack of food, the loss of house or land, the loss of dear family members. You know what it is to weep with this woman, to be sad. But the sadness here is not only in Naomi's subjective feeling of losing her husband and her sons. 
The sadness is also meant to be felt as we see the objective reality of sin's effects. All this, in some way or another, is because of sin. I mean, from the first verse, this famine that we read about in Bethlehem is not some random event. It's not that Mother Nature has acted irrationally and caused the drought. It's not that not enough people donated to UNICEF in their fight against world hunger. No, this famine in this land at this moment in time is the result of sin. Is an act of God's judgment. God promised his people when he covenanted with them and brought them into the land he'd given them that if they obeyed him, they'd meet innumerable blessings. He told them in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, if you carefully and faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, then blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and of your young flock. Amen. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. But if they disobeyed him, if they rebelled against his rule, God promised curses. He says a few verses later in Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you, then all these curses shall overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and cursed shall be your kneading bowl. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The heavens over your head shall be like iron and bronze and the earth under you like iron. The Lord will make the rain of the land to be like powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Drought. No rain from above to water the crops below to feed the flocks and the herds and ultimately the people was from God's hand. Amen. A result of Israel's rebellion. This famine was because of his people's sin. And the death we see in verses 1 through 5 is also a result of the people's sin. Amen. I mean, even with the famine in Bethlehem, the fact that Elimelech left the promised land, the land God had given his people to go to Moab and enemy people is not a good thing. Amen. Moab was Israel's constant enemy. And most famously, you might remember, it was the Moabite king, Balak, who hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel as it was seeking to inhabit the promised land. It was later the Moabites and their king, Eglon, who conquered and for a time ruled over Israel during the time of the judges. It was the Moabites who worshipped Chemosh and all other kinds of false gods. And so the choice of Elimelech to leave Bethlehem to go to Moab was a move from a bad situation to an even worse one. 
Yes, there may have been food in Moab, but look what else is there. All right. We're not told explicitly the cause of Elimelech's death. But it could be directly because of his sin. Perhaps God's judgment upon him for not trusting in his providence and provision in Bethlehem. And instead seeking rest in another land. Similarly, we're not told the exact cause of Naomi's son's death, Malon and Kilion. But given what we are told about them, that they took Moabite wives, we might presume that sin may have been a factor. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, God explicitly forbids his people from intermarrying with Canaanites. And though the Moabites aren't explicitly mentioned, Given their polytheism and worship of false gods, it's at least unwise for an Israelite who's supposed to worship the one and only true God Amen. to marry a Moabite. Amen. But even without the explicit causes of, of death spelled out here, death itself is always the result of sin. Maybe not a direct sin, but all death is a consequence of sin. God promised the first man, Adam, that rebellion would lead to death. And when Adam rebelled, sin and death entered into the world so that all men sin and all men and women die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. We're not meant to read these first few verses and simply read of the sad situation of one woman way back when. Nor are we meant to read these verses resigned to the fact that life can just be hard, that loss is normal. We're meant to read these verses with a sense of heartfelt agony at the horror that sin causes. Sin never brings life. All right. It always brings death. Maybe that's a reminder you need this morning. Because you're toying with some sin and you think it's safe. Because you haven't gotten caught yet. Nothing bad has happened yet. Friends, beware where sin leads. Or perhaps you need these verses to remind you that current hardships, hard as they are, should not cause you to turn your back on God and to seek something or someone better. The proverbial grass is not greener on the other side. In leaving the famine in Judah, this family found greater futility in Moab. When they left God's place, where God promised his presence would be, what they met was death. Hmm. Friends, that's how it always is apart from God. Life is not life apart from him. Hmm. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Apart from him, there's only doom and destruction and death. No, we need not view these verses as only tied to sin. Even in our obedience to God, 
We're not promised to have an easy life. Amen. I mean, Naomi's loss here might remind you of Job's loss in the book of Job, which was prompted not by his sin, but it was sent his way, although he was blameless in the Lord's sight. The reality is that life in a fallen world can be bitter. Not only owing to our individual sin, but to God's sometimes strange and hard providences. From our perspective, all we see and experience is that life is bitter. But we need not lose sight that in everything, God is at work. So point number one, life is bitter. But point number two, God is at work. Point number two, but God is at work. Notice here the, the, the juxtaposition between the first five verses and then verse six. While Naomi is mourning over in Moab, the Lord is moving in Jerusalem and moving Naomi back home. And we read in verse 6 that after the deaths of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, then Naomi arose with her two daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. And what prompted her movements were the Lord's movements. Amen. The end of verse 6 says she left because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food or literally bread. While Naomi's world is dark and dreary, the dark and dreary world she left has seen something of a great light. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, has bread again. For the Lord has visited his people. If those words sound familiar, it's because you've read them in the biblical story before. It's these words that we read in Exodus. When the people of Israel were in a dark place, trapped in bondage in Egypt. But God sends Moses and Aaron to Egypt and tells the Israelites of God's plan to rescue them. And Exodus chapter 4 verse 31 says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel Amen. and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Fast forward a thousand years. You find the people of Israel again in gloom. They'd experienced the misery of sin and were still waiting for their Messiah. And on top of that, God had not spoken to them in over 400 years. But then an angel appeared one day to a man named Zechariah and told him that his wife would bear a son who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Amen. And when John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, seeing that God's plan of salvation was about to be realized, broke out in praise, saying in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Amen. for he has visited and redeemed his people. Oh, saints, whatever you're experiencing in life, 
is not the sum total of life itself. All right. You and I are finite beings with a finite view of what's really going on in the midst of melancholy. When God might seem most distant, you might just find is when God is most at work for you. All right. I think we see here that God is not aloof. He's not some detached deity unconcerned with the world. No, the Bible presents a personal God who, though transcended to the world and the people he's created, is nonetheless imminent in the world, yeah. intimately involved in our lives. Amen. And amazingly, not even our sin has totally turned him off. Mm. I mean, the famine that Israel faced was because they sinned against God. Mm. And yet God still comes to them, visits them, and still refers to them, sinful and rebellious as they are, as his people. Amen. And he provides for them. It's what's called grace. God giving them what they don't deserve. What Israel deserved was to perish from starvation for their sin of turning their backs away from God. But God grants them life by giving them bread. It's the same way he treats us. God has given us what we don't deserve. What you and I deserve is to perish for our sin of turning away from God. But God has granted us life by giving us bread. The very bread of life. His very son, Jesus Christ, whose body like bread was broken for us who died and suffered in our place for our sins and rose again from the grave so that all who turn to him might be saved. God has provided what his people most desperately need. Naomi hears about him all the way in Moab. How? Maybe through some traveler who just returned from Judah. Maybe through some courier who'd been paid to pass the news along. But behind their words was the almighty voice of God beckoning this broken woman to come home, Naomi. Come home. Come back to me. Return. You see that word, return, splattered 12 times through the rest of this chapter from verses 6 through verse 22. It's the Hebrew word shuv, which in some contexts means to physically return to someplace, and in other contexts, to repent. Most often in this passage, it seems to refer to a physical returning. But at least in some instances, I think this physical returning also has some spiritual undertones as feet are turning back to a place hearts are turning back to a god all right god is at work drawing naomi to himself and so she sets out to go to return to the land of judah 
But as she goes, she implores her two daughters-in-law to go back to their homes. Look at verse 8. Naomi says to them, go, return each of you to your mother's homes. May the, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Amen. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Mm. The Lord is not only at work bringing Naomi back to Judah, the Lord is also at work in Naomi's heart. Mm. I mean, she's experienced the bitterness of life, but it's not made her bitter towards other people. And notice the incredible mutual love that exists between her and her daughters-in-law. She cares for them. Amen. Even at the expense of her own well-being. Hmm. I mean, she's an older woman left all alone. She has no men to provide for her. Hmm. You'd think that the second best thing would be to have these daughters-in-law care for her then. Hmm. But notice her selfless love. She wants what's best for them, not only what might benefit herself. In fact, throughout this whole book, you'll observe how the characters are often marked by care and concern for others primarily, an others-oriented outlook. It's the way the Lord intends for all of us to live, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. Amen. Life has been sort of a misery lately for Naomi, but she doesn't want misery to keep company. She wants for her daughters-in-law a better life. And so she commends them to return home, find husbands and marry. She wants to secure their long-term care and provision. Yeah. She wants them to be stable. And she prays even that the Lord would do this for them. Hardships haven't turned Naomi into an atheist. She still believes in the Lord. And she still believes that God is good to people. Even if she hasn't personally felt the benefit of it. In her experience, she says later in verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. But she prays that the Lord would deal kindly with these women. Grant them rest and security that marriage would afford. It's a sensible, rational way that Naomi is, is thinking as it regards her daughters-in-law. Look, the, the easiest a path of least resistance, most comfortable life for you would be to go back to your parents' home, settle in, meet some nice Moabite man, and remarry. You think that Orpah and Ruth would readily see that sensibility and immediately return home. But verse 9 says they wept at this suggestion. Amen. Saying in verse 10, no, we will return with you to your people. It just speaks to the incredible bond that these women had together. They all loved each other to the point that Orpah and Ruth did not want to leave. How different is that with you and your in-laws? Some of y'all were just with your in-laws last week for Thanksgiving. And after 20 minutes, you was ready to dip out. All right, then, we'll be seeing you next year. <laughs> but these women didn't want to leave Naomi's side at all. There was a deep love and care for each other. 
Does that characterize your relationship with your in-laws? If not, why not? It says don't give in to the world's thinking that assumes and settles for strained relationships with your in-laws. Trust that God can change relationships. Amen. Pray that he will. Amen. And work towards building better, deeper relationships. Amen. That might require repentance on your part. Amen. And patience Amen. on your part. Amen. Whether you're the mother or father-in-law or the son and daughter-in-law. It might require you putting up with awkwardness and putting others' interests above your own. Like these women did for each other. Amen. Like Jesus Christ did for you. Amen. Against their protests, Naomi has to work in verses 11 and 12 to remind them that there is no earthly hope. No promise of a better life that she can offer them. She's too old to have more sons to give them husbands. And even if that weren't the case, were they willing to wait decades upon decades for the child to reach the age of marriage? Once more, the prospect of leaving Naomi brings grief. Verse 14 says, Orpah and Ruth lifted up their voices and wept again. But Orpah finally resigns to what seems like good worldly wisdom. It's better for her back in Moab. So she tenderly kisses her mother-in-law and leaves. But Ruth clung to her. So Naomi says to her in verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now some see here a kind of tacit approval of other gods by Naomi. Encouraging Orpah first and now Ruth more explicitly to go back to Moab, even if it means going back to worshiping the Moabite gods. But given Naomi's constant reference to the Lord in this passage, I don't think that's the case. Amen. Rather, I think what we see Naomi doing here is pressing the cost, the heavy cost of following her back to Judah. It means giving up everything, your gods, your family, your prospects for marriage, your prospects for children, your financial stability, your future, everything. Are you willing to count the cost? Yes, Ruth responds. That's the essence of her amazing words in verses 16 and 17. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and Amen. your God, my God. Amen. Where you die, I will die and I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death separates me from you. Amen. Now, sometimes you'll see these, these funny memes floating around the internet. One in particular that I find interesting and, and, and kind of stimulating is a, a meme where a person is kind of staring adoringly at another person, and there's a caption underneath that says something like, uh, find you somebody in life who stares at you like this, Amen. or who looks at you like this. Well, friends, find you somebody who loves you like this. Amen. 
I mean, talk about a ride or die. But you don't have to worry about going to find somebody like this. All right. The Lord has given you somebody like this Amen. in your church family. Mm. Made up of people like Ruth. Different from you. Not sharing your same blood. But committed to follow the same God as you. All right. And to love and care for you in him. It is the Lord's kindness to give this weary widow, Naomi, another weary widow, Amen. Ruth, to walk alongside her, to comfort her, to care for her. And saints, it is the Lord's kindness to give you other brothers and sisters in the church to walk alongside you, to help comfort and care for you. They are extensions of God's grace. Amen. But are you pushing them away? Amen. How might you do that? Mm. Well, one way might be by not opening up your life to them. By keeping your pain wrapped up inside. Mm. By trying to handle grief on your own. <clears throat> That's not the life we're called to live. Now, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, calls us to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. And that's what we pledge to do in our church covenants. But for someone to bear your burdens and sorrows, you've got to share your burdens and sorrows. Who might be a Ruth to you now in our congregation? Who might you be a Ruth to now? In our congregation. Amen. The Lord is at work in Naomi's life. Mm -hmm. Bringing Ruth along with her as a companion. Mm -hmm. But he's also at work more broadly fulfilling his plans. Mm -hmm. His securing Ruth's attachment to Naomi. Is not simply securing a friend to walk alongside a sister. Mm -hmm. It is securing a foreigner. To walk alongside his chosen people. It is God opening up, as it were, his arms widely and inviting the nations home as well. All right, and where is home for them? It's not back with their natural families. It's not back with their supposed gods. Home is with him. Amen. Home is worshiping him, the one who gave them life and breath and everything else that they had. That's been God's plan. All along. And not just to show his saving grace to one person or to one people, mm. but to all peoples through his people. Mm. Now, that's why he told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. Mm. Now, that's why he told Abraham that through him he'd bless all the families of the earth. Amen. That's why he rescued Israel. And made them into a kingdom of priests, functioning to make God and his ways known to all the nations. Amen. And here God is again, using his people, an Israelite, Naomi, to bring the peoples, the nations, a Moabite, Ruth, to himself. Amen. Friends, God has purposes behind our pain that are greater than what we can imagine. 
I mean, regardless of the sin that may have been involved, God providentially brought this family into Moab. And then he removed all the earthly crutches and sources of strength that Naomi could rely on. But as Paul said earlier in the scripture Joseph read for us, that was the cause Naomi relied not on herself, but to rely more on God. Amen. And in something of her still clinging to Yahweh, crying out to the Lord through years of pain and grief, still trusting in him when a new trial hit, she left an indelible mark on Ruth. So that she pledges here, Ruth pledges here, even if I can't have anything else in this world, I want to follow you as you follow your God. Amen. And your God will be my God. And your people, my people. That's covenantal language. Amen. It's similar to what God told Israel when he entered into a covenant with them. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And Ruth here says, more eagerly, sadly, than many of the native Israelites, yes, Lord, be my God. I long to be your people. God used tragedy to secure Naomi's physical return and Ruth's spiritual repentance. In his commentary on Ruth, the Scottish Theologian Sinclair Ferguson makes this keen observation that through all the death that marked the earlier parts of this chapter, through all that death comes this spiritual life. That's God's strange plan, isn't it? Mm, amen. He uses suffering to bring sinners to himself. And Naomi's suffering and her witness in it was God's instrument to save Ruth. So how might God be using your suffering, your struggles, and your witness in it for his sovereign purposes? Ultimately, it was through the suffering, the trials, the experience with death of another native from Bethlehem that would secure the salvation of all the nations. When God's own son entered into the world and was born in Bethlehem, and lived a perfect life of obedience to God, Amen. but laid down his life and suffered for our sins. Amen. He was pierced for our transgressions. Yes. He was crushed for our iniquities. Amen. He was killed for us. Mm. And Revelation 5, 9 says that by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Yes. God was at work in all Naomi's suffering to bring Ruth to himself. Amen. And friends, God is still at work using Jesus' suffering to bring you to himself. He's calling you today as he called Naomi and Ruth then, return. Amen. Return. Come home to me. Amen. Will you turn from your sins today? And turn to God. If you want to know more about what that looks like, talk to anyone after you, uh, around you after service. Talk to me at the door. We'd love to tell you more about if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the Lord as your own, 
how today you might know him as your God and he might know you as his son Amen. or his daughter. Mm. This chapter ends with Naomi converting back to worshiping the God she knew and loved. Back to fully committed to him. And Ruth converted and determined to follow Naomi's God. They both come back to Bethlehem. Amen. And verse 19 says the whole town was buzzing with their arrival. It was the talk of the town. Yeah. I mean, here was Naomi returning after so many years, but not with her husband and sons. Yeah. But with a young Moabite woman. And what in the world? Is this the same Naomi? They ask. So much has changed. The hardships of life perhaps have hardened her face. She perhaps left with a, a vibrant look and now grief has wrinkled every crevice. Perhaps the, the hardships of life have caused her to be a little more somber. Not as outwardly jolly, but realistic about what life brings. And yet hopeful, because she's seen the Lord bring about change. Amen. Here she is back home. Mm. The people ask, is this Naomi? Mm -hmm. Naomi responds in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Amen. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, we don't need to read this as Naomi being bitter with God, mad at God. Nothing in this text says that. Rather, what I think she demonstrates here is an accurate picture of God. That God is sovereign. He is the one who brought Naomi all the bitter experiences in life. He is the one who brought all the calamity in her life. He is the one who brought her back to Bethlehem without her sons and her husband. She understands what a previous sufferer understood that the Lord gives and that same Lord takes away. But in Ruth's understanding of God's sovereignty in her life, in her grief, it seems she's blinded a bit to his goodness in her life. Yes, she left Bethlehem full with a full family, but she hasn't really come back empty. She's come back with a daughter-in-law, a family member fiercely loyal to her. And not only that, she's also come back with a daughter in the faith, a family member fiercely loyal to her God. Here they are at the end of chapter one together. At the start of verse 22, tells us a body harvest. God 
has turned this once barren land of Bethlehem into a harvest. Amen. A glimpse into what he's about to do in this book. Turn this once barren family into a harvest. And through this family, bring a spiritual harvest to all the world. Amen. The bitterness of life is about to bring forth sweet fruits because God is still at work Amen. in their lives and brothers and sisters in our lives. Amen. We don't know what God is doing through the gloom and hardships of today, but we know that for those who love God, yes. all things work together for our good. Amen and for God's eternal glory. Yeah, May the Lord remind us that we can trust in him Amen. and rest in him in all his plans for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the rawness and reality that your word gives us of the lives that we so often can recognize because our lives look similar. Lives of hardships and loss and death and pain and grief and tears. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you give us reminders that we don't suffer alone. That others before us have suffered as well and can help us to, to endure suffering as good soldiers in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Christ who suffers as well for us and can empathize with our weaknesses, can sympathize with us in our suffering. Lord, we pray that we would cling to him and that you would show us, Lord, that even when we feel all alone, we are never alone. Even when we feel like you are distant, that you are always working. Lord, we pray, Lord, that as we remember that, that even in the midst of misery and grief and gloom, we can confidently say, yet still it is well with our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.